So last night I was speaking about mindfulness of the Dhamma and using the meaning of Dhamma primarily as the teaching. So I explained how the word Dhamma has a number of different meanings and one being the teachings and spoke about the basic teachings of the Buddha in the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And uh, I'd just like to continue a little bit this evening, uh, a little bit more with the the meaning of Dhamma as the teachings and Dhamma relating to the teachings and then speak about uh, Dhamma as meaning the nature of things and bringing mindfulness to the nature of things. So another another aspect of the teachings of the Dhamma which the Buddha put considerable emphasis on is understanding and knowing and cultivating what he referred to as seven factors of awakening, seven factors for awakening, seven factors for enlightenment, for liberation. And, um, and it's, it's, it's interesting and, and helpful, I think, to, to have a sense of these seven factors. Certainly, um, it can help our practice and, uh, and I think, um, having some sense of these factors can perhaps give us some sense of what awakening means as well. What it means to, what it, what it means to live an awakened life. What kinds of qualities would be present in an awakened person. And so the, the first factor which the Buddha emphasized for cultivating, for awakening, is of course mindfulness. And we've spoken much about mindfulness and we've been practicing mindfulness or trying to practice mindfulness. And so I, I hope by now we have a sense of what mindfulness is. And the second factor is, um, is the other factor that I've spoken about in relation to mindfulness and this goes along with mindfulness as a foundation of the practice and that is this quality of investigation or interest. And so we can see that with mindfulness we can, um, we can have a, a great deal of, of clarity and, um, and steadiness and awareness and presence. Um, but, but mindfulness in itself um, doesn't, doesn't seem to bring a great depth of understanding. Certainly it can take us to pleasant states, to enjoyable states, and, and some degree of, of clarity for understanding. But this, it's this factor of, of investigation, this factor of taking interest, this factor of curiosity that really carries us through. So when we get to a point where we may have some insight, think, oh, now I've caught it. It's this factor of investigation that can kind of keep us from getting stuck in that and, and take us through it. So, so these two these two factors are, are really the foundation. And the third the third factor is energy. And energy as a factor for awakening isn't the kind of energy that we kind of force ourselves to get. Okay, I've got to get up for this. I've got to force myself to pay attention to the breath. It's it's not that kind of effortful energy. It's the kind of energy that comes 
quite naturally when we really are interested in something when we're really interested in giving our attention to something, of being mindful of something, of, of being present with what's happening. And that interest is really there. We, we see that the energy just naturally comes. So it may come, um, you may notice it like at the end of the day when we're feeling really tired and you just want to kind of veg out and hang out and face out. And then, and then maybe a friend calls and says, oh, how about we have a visit? Oh, yes. And the energy comes. And it's not forced in any way. It's just that natural energy. So this is this is the energy for awakening. And then the the fourth factor is joy. It's the one of the the translations of the actual Pali word. The translation and one of one of the translations that's used is unsullied rapture. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful phrase. It's just that real joy and delight. And again, just a very natural joy and delight, the kind that we feel, the kind that we experience when we're really interested in something and, and, and the energy is there. And just really enjoying and loving what, what's happening. Sometimes we feel that when we go into nature, when we're living in the city and we go out in nature and we're just out there and it's just, ah, oh, just wonderful, it's just so joyful. And the, uh, the next, the next factor is calmness or steadiness or tranquility. And, and we can see in our own experience too at times, perhaps, when, when these other factors are present, when that, when that, um, interest is there and the energy is there and the joy is there. And just in the giving attention, there, there can be a steadiness and a calmness and a tranquility and a, and a sense of of peacefulness, and we can really settle in to what we're doing, and there's an ease with it. And this is this, this next factor of tranquility, or calmness, or steadiness, and uh, and it's a it's a factor. It's a it's a steadiness that that really isn't disturbed. It's not disturbed. So it's like um, maybe when you're reading reading a, a book, a really a really a book that you're really engrossed in and really enjoying reading and the and the and the attention just stays very steady with it. Very steady and there's nothing that disturbs that at all. So this is the kind of steadiness. And 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 hopefully hopefully we've had some taste of that in these days in bringing the attention to the sensation, to the breath, to the mind state. Hopefully there's been some sense of, of really taking interest in it and finding the energy to give that attention and finding the joy and feeling the joy in exploring life, the joy in looking at our life, looking at who we are and what's happening in life and this and the steadiness that comes with that. And then the next factor and here we come to number six of seven. And again, this is our old friend, concentration. <laughs> and, and again, it's interesting to notice how the Buddha puts concentration near the end of the list. And, and, and here I think it's really highlighting how it's, it's the kind of concentration, not, not the kind of concentration that's fixed and rigid and taking a lot of effort and struggle. 
But it really is a concentration that comes very naturally, just that very natural focusing that comes when there is this joy, this, this enjoyment in, in being present with whatever it is. When we're reading that book and we just really get focused on it just because it's so, there's so much interest in it. And there's so much joy and delight in it. And there's so much tranquility and peacefulness in, 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 the, in the reading, in, the, in the, the being with it. And the, the attention just very naturally gets focused. And, the, and maybe um, someone, uh, maybe the telephone rings, it's your friend calling to see if you want to get together. <laughs> and you just don't even hear the phone ring. Or if you hear it ring, it's just, it's just, just the focus is so much that it just doesn't even touch. It's so concentrated. So this, this concentration that's accompanied by joy and lightness and, and openness. And then the last factor, the seventh factor, is equanimity. And equanimity is kind of a balancing factor for, for all of these. Equanimity is the factor which allows for a steadiness or which sustains a steadiness, um, a steadiness and calmness, a tranquility, a joy. It sustains all the other, all the other factors when, um, we could say, one example would be when the concentration is disturbed. So if the friend calls a second time and you hear the phone ring and, and, and actually hear the phone ring and just the concentration, the, the joy is just not disturbed and so you can just, ah, phone, you just pick up the phone and have the talk, put it down and go right back in. So the calmness and the joy, there's no disturbance, this is, this is, this is equanimity being able to face the challenges of life without being thrown, without getting sucked into them. This is the factor of equanimity. And so, maybe, maybe we've had times, maybe you've noticed times in your life, or maybe you can reflect on times in your life when these factors have been present. Maybe during this retreat, you can point to times, particular sittings, or particular walking periods, or maybe a Qigong period, when, when this has all been present. And, uh, and, and then maybe the question could come, well, you know, I see times when these factors are all present, but um, I don't feel awake. <laughs> <laughs> so, what else, what else is needed? What's missing? These are the seven factors. So the Buddha said these are seven factors for awakening. <laughs> but he didn't say these seven factors are awakening. So in, the, in, the, in these, these seven factors, the, the way what he goes on to explain is he says that these seven factors ripen in relinquishment. The seven factors ripen in relinquishment, in letting go, releasing. They ripen in non-grasping. And if we remember back to the Four Noble Truths, this non-grasping, this relinquishment, this is the ending of the suffering. And so the, these, these factors 
are present, but they need to ripen. And so one, one aspect, an important aspect of the meditation is the cultivation of these factors and then caring for them in a way that they can ripen. And so the, the ripening and relinquishment, so how does this happen? And, and the question that usually comes up is, well, okay, the fact is all here, then what do I do with this? How do I relinquish? How do I let go? And, and it's a little bit of a, a tricky question and a difficult one to answer because, um, because letting go, relinquishing, isn't a doing. If we, if we think about it, if we think about, about effort and about doing, holding is doing, holding is effort. Letting go is just relaxing. Relaxing. It's non-holding. The absence of. Not the presence of doing, it's the absence of. And, and so, so this, this letting go, this relinquishing, isn't something that we can do or learn how to do but it's something that can happen. And we know that because we've all experienced it. We've all had the experience of, of holding something. And at some point, for who knows what reason, just realizing, oh, just don't need to do this. <laughs> and it's, oh. You know, maybe, maybe some strong desire comes in, something, oh, I really want this, I want this, I want this. And at some point I realized, oh, I'm not going to get it. There's no point in just pursuing this and just oh, let it go. And in that letting go, there's such a relief. It's like a burden is gone. And that, that's the ripening, if you can imagine that on a quite a, quite a large scale. It's like that relinquishing of, of the burden of life. Life as a burden. And so, so how, what is it that allows for this, this kind of leap, kind of a leap from the factors to the relinquishing? So this is, this is where Dhamma, in the sense of the nature of things, comes in. This, this leap happens in the presence of understanding, of insight, of seeing into the nature of things. One of the roles of these factors of awakening, a role, an important role of these factors, is that they support us and uh, enable us to really look closely to really get close to whatever the object is that we're looking at. So if we're looking at ourselves, or if we're looking at some other object, like this object, or this object, or another person, or a thought, when in the, the presence of these factors, we can look very closely because we're not being disturbed by anything. So it allows for a very kind of intimate relationship 
And in that close, intimate relationship, there can be this very clear seeing, very direct experiencing, not just a seeing, but an actual experiencing of the nature of things. An actual experiencing of, of the object just as it is free of any of our concepts about it, our ideas about it, our memories of it, our projections into it, um, our labels of it, our identification with it. All of these all of these conditions that kind of color the way we relate to it. So the, the factors allow us to be close. And we can begin to see, to know the nature, the characteristics of things. And one of the characteristics which I've spoken about is the characteristic of the impermanence of things, the changing nature of things. And, and the, the, the more intimate we can get with something, the more we become aware of its changing nature, its impermanence. And, and if we, if we really let that kind of really percolate into us and sink into our being and, and allow the, the fact of, of impermanence to kind of permeate all ourselves. We begin to get a sense, to really get a sense that we just can't hold on to something, to anything. We can't keep it the way it is. We experience impermanence at the moment to moment to moment to moment level. And we know from moment to moment to moment it's changing. So we just can't. It's futile to try and hold on. It's really suffering to try and hold on to it. And seeing that and knowing that and experiencing it, there can be this relinquishment. So in, in, in that, that intimate understanding and experiencing of the impermanent nature of things, the relinquishing. And also in the, in the, the understanding and the, the, the actual experience of the, the unsatisfactoriness of things. The unsatisfactoriness of things because we can't keep them. Because they're not going to stay with us forever because they're not going to bring us happiness forever. Again, to see the futility of trying, of expecting that, of hoping for it, and perhaps in seeing that, in experiencing it, the letting go. We relate, we relate to objects, we, we we think about objects, we desire objects, and, and we want to get them, thinking that they'll bring us happiness. So we find some object that we want, and it could be a thing, it could be a car, or a house, or a relationship, or a job, or a whole range, and maybe a, a particular kind of food that they don't serve here at Gaia House. It could be a whole range of things. They, the, the desire, the desire comes forth. And we work and we struggle and, and keep thinking, oh, when I get this I'll be so happy. Maybe 
thinking about tomorrow, how the end of the retreat, when it comes, oh, we said the relief. So they have this object in mind, this thing in mind, and, and struggling to get it, and thinking, oh, I'll be so happy when I get it. And, and then we, we get the object, and wow, we really do feel happy. It's so nice, it's so wonderful to get that object. And we get, we get the object, and, and there's that, that happiness, that, that pleasure with it. And, and somehow the, the pleasure, the experience of pleasure, gets kind of transported into the object. And we start to believe that the, the pleasure is part of the object somehow. That it's the object that gives me the pleasure. And we believe that. But if we look closely, we don't even have to look so closely. If we just pay attention, we see that, yes, we get the object and we have pleasure, and how quickly the mind finds something else that it needs for pleasure. If that particular object has in it so much pleasure for us, why do we need more? Why do we start to look for something else? And how often have we found an object, and again, it could be a car, a house, a relationship, <laughs> and we get it and we feel the pleasure. And, and after a certain period of time, what happens to that pleasure? <laughs> we get tired of the object, we get bored with it, get angry at it, <laughs> put it away. <laughs> If the pleasure were inherent in that object, how can it how can it go like that? So we can we can look and we can see the pleasure isn't in the object, and and maybe it, maybe it raises the question: Do we when we when we get something like that that we want and we get it? Is the, is the pleasure that we feel, the happiness that we feel, is it really from getting the object, or is it because the desire is gone? Something to look at, something to consider. What is it that actually gives the pleasure? So we see, we can we can see in in different ways, from different perspectives, that that it's that no object, no thing that's subject to change is going to give us any kind of lasting, indefinite happiness or pleasure. And the more clearly we see that, the more we give up on that idea. It doesn't mean we have to start throwing out all the objects and getting rid of everything. The Buddha tried that and found it causing more suffering. It's not about throwing out and getting rid of. It's just not holding on to that idea that this is it. Ah, now I've got it and it's going to stay with me. Just like this. There's a relinquishing. And again, just in that relinquishing, there's there's a, a lightness. A lightening of the load of trying to hold on, of trying to keep that happiness. 
So this unsatisfactoriness of things, which is very much related to the impermanence, is another nature of things, it's another characteristic of things. And, and the more clearly we see that, the more, the more we lose the interest in trying to get things, or to have things, or to keep things, or to get rid of things, thinking that that's going to bring us the happiness. And then the third characteristic of things that the Buddha pointed out, and and we can we can look at um, change, we can see the impermanence, and, and maybe we could ask the question, well, um, why do things change? Why are things impermanent? And and this third this third factor um, in a way explains that, and so impermanence and the third factor are very much related. And the third factor in the Pali language is called anatta. And anatta translates literally as not-self, or without self. And what it means is that things don't exist as independent selves. They don't exist as independent things. Things exist dependent on other things in relationship to other things. And so they're said to not have an independent self, or to not have self. And so so what does that mean? So we can try and explain that. So when we, we look at things, the way that we the way that we relate to the world and the way that we perceive the world is through our senses. And so when we when we hear a sound, and um, perhaps you've had the experience in, in sittings, and just sitting, and and just suddenly a sound arises, hearing arises, and we can get a sense of that hearing just happening, and and perhaps have a sense of well, it's not really me happening, it's not really me hearing, it's just hearing, hearing. It's just the vibration happens to hit the ear, and I'm just sitting here paying attention to the breath, minding my own business, and all of a sudden there's a crow cawing. <laughs> and there's the hearing. And it's not that I do anything or I make it happen. It just happens in that, that contact. In that contact, it arises. And so the hearing is dependent on these factors. Okay, and similarly with other senses, with the seeing, the moment of opening the eyes at the end of a sitting. Perhaps there can be a noticing or a knowing that just in that moment of opening, there's just a visual object there. And in that moment of seeing, it's just a visual object. It doesn't have a name or a purpose. Color doesn't have a name to it. It's just kind of a passive, hmm, there. And then the mind comes in and gives it the name. And the story comes in about it. And memories come in of seeing it in the past, or will I see it in the future, or will it be the same, or 
will it be different? And, and the mind comes in and, and puts all these things on it, and then it starts to take shape and take color, and then and then the the an aspe- another aspect of mind comes in and it puts it out there, perceives it as being out there, and actually the the seeing of it is dependent on the coming together of the the light vibration and the eye organ and they come together and the seeing happens and isn't it strange how the seeing is actually happening here in the mind and yet we see the object as being out there isn't that something? (laughs) so the, the mind has the perception of here and there. And then it has the perception of that and me. And it makes that separation, that separation of something which is actually a coming together. It appears because of the coming together. And then the mind makes the separation. And so there's there's a very direct relationship. There's a dependency. There's a dependency. The hearing arises in a dependency. Not because I do it, but because of conditions that allow it to happen. The seeing arises because of conditions that allow it to happen. Touch sensation, the body sensations happen, arise, because there's certain conditions that allow it to happen. Tasting happens. Smelling happens because of conditions allowing it to happen. And the mind comes in and brings in the stories and the identities and the labels and the perception of here and there and this and that and up and down and inside and outside and on retreat and off retreat. But it's all happening because of the interdependence, because of the non-separateness, the non-selfness of things. We look at we look at objects and we can see what what is the non-selfness. So we take an object like a bell. So we, we say it's a bell. But um, what what is a bell? What's a bell? A bell is an object that makes a sound. Okay, so I hold up this bell and I can hold this bell up for a lifetime, and it's not going to make a sound. So this in itself isn't a bell. To be a bell, it needs something else. (laughs) Okay, so here we have something else. Okay, so there's another condition that's needed. (laughs) They have to hit it. (laughs) So here, it's still not a bell. (laughs) Pre-story bell. (laughs) Another condition needed has to be let go. <laughs> and then it can be a bell. So bell is a word that we give. It's an idea, it's a concept that we give to a whole collection of conditions, of factors. There's no there's no such there's no such ex- separately existing thing as bell. It's just a word, a concept that we give to a whole collection of factors. And there's other factors involved too. The, you know, the, the, the temperature. The change in the temperature will affect the sound of this bell. 
And so it makes it a different bell. Temperature goes up, becomes a different bell. Temperature goes down, different bell. This bell is also dependent on the person who shaped it, who made it. Dependent on the people who mined the metal. Dependent on all the forces of nature that created the metals in the first place. So what we call bell is really quite a vast, <laughs> it's a vast thing. It's, it's really connected to so much of the universe. And yet we perceive it as a separate, independent, solid thing. And we believe it. We take that to be the way things are, the way it is. But its natural state is this dependent arising, this not-selfness. And to see that, to see that, to see that is to, to give much less substantiality and reality and, and, and separateness to this thing. And to see anything in this way, to realize this not-selfness of anything, is to give less substantiality and less importance to it. And in that there can be this relinquishing. Relinquishing of the idea that I need to hold it. relinquishing of the idea that I can get rid of it. And it's all connected. It's all in relationship. And so this, this relinquishing again is this, this letting go, this not grasping, and again not meaning that I take this down and throw it away. It's just not, not holding on, not taking it so seriously and certainly not taking it as mine. So we look at the objects and we can relinquish the objects, let go of the objects, not grasping, and, and feel a real freedom in that. There's a real freedom in, in relating to objects in that way, and being able to relate to things as not mine. I don't have to worry about possessing them, about holding on to them, about keeping them. One teacher we went to visit in, in India one time and went to hear him give a talk and he was, he was talking about, um, about, um, about gurus who, who have all the answers and, and know everything. And, and he said, uh, he said, oh, it's really wonderful to not know anything because then when somebody comes and starts asking you questions, you don't have to defend anything. <laughs> you don't have to prove that you're right and that you know it. It's wonderful. <laughs> There's a real freedom in that not holding on to anything. And then the 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 looking and the and the the looking at the selfness of things and seeing how the, the objects of the world have been has been not selfless and, and the relinquishing. And then we kind of turn it around and say, Well, what about the self? What about the me that knows that? What about the me that's looking at all this? Which me? Which me? We see, we can see the hearing arises, the tasting arises, the touching arises, the thinking arises, the, 
smelling, all these, these perceptions and all these sense experiences, they all arise out of the conditions. And we can, we can know that, there can be a knowing of that, just that, that moment of hearing arising, and then we see how the mind comes in. And we see how the memories come in. And we see how the projections come in. And we see, we can see it with, with, with seeing, with tasting, with thinking, with mind space, with emotion. And it's like mind piles layer on top of layer on top of layer. And, and out of all these things arising and, and out of the perceptions and the memories, a construction comes out of it. The construction of an image of me. All these things kind of get taken and get lumped together and the mind perceives them as being separate from everything else. Perceives the hearing as being separate from what's heard. And if what's heard is out there, then there's got to be something hearing that's in here. So the mind creates this separation, and in the separation creates an image of me. And it really is an image. And we can see that. We can, we can, we can see that um, just by asking a bunch of different friends. We ask all our friends, well, what's your image of me? What do you think of me? And we get all these different images. And then we ask ourselves, what's my image of me? And it's different from their friends. Based on, based on our experiences, past and present, based on our memories, based on all these different conditions and image forms of me. And very often, usually, I think, this image is quite narrow. And we create an image and label ourselves, I'm this type of person or that type of person, or I'm like this or I'm like that. And then someone else comes along and says, what? You're not like that at all. A different image, and to see to see how this this image of self forms, and to see how this the the image of self creates a separation of self from others, creates an image of separation of self from the environment, from the world, creates an image of here and there, of inside and outside. And to see through this, and, and, and to realize the interconnectedness, to realize the not-selfness of self, it's kind of a paradox, because of course there's, there's a self here, of course there's someone here. But this self that here is only here because of all these selves out here. It's only here because of this floor being here to support it, and the earth being here to support it, and the food, and the water, and the air, and all these other conditions that allow it to be. And in that is not self, is not separate self. And, and one of the one of the effects of of really deeply realizing this and, and seeing this and knowing and experiencing it is is to, to really know our relationship and our connection with others. To know that we're not separate, we're not alone, 
and out of that can really come caring and compassion and friendliness. And also in, in knowing the, in knowing this, this not-selfness of self, just as with the objects, there's that relinquishing. In knowing the not-selfness of self, the self is taken less seriously. It's not seen as such a solid, independent, individual, uh, continuous thing. It's also changing. We can see that self changes quite rapidly. You've probably noticed that in the sitting, in the walking, in the Qigong. Can change very rapidly from moment to moment. Sometimes you see the mind just go in the body. One one period, one period of qigong just aches in the back and in the arms. And the next period, it's feeling oh, very light and free. And then maybe aches in the legs. It changes. You're not 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 seeing so not taking so with so much reality the sense of continuity of self self-changing in relation to the sounds, in relation to the, the climate, in relation to other people around, in relation to the food, all kinds of factors. So this self, and, and so not taking the self so seriously, a lightness with self, a relinquishing, not holding on to me as being the center of the world and everything else happening around there. And in this in this relinquishing, the relinquishing, the non-grasping of, of things and the non-grasping of self, real deep knowing of the not-selfness of things, real deep knowing, experiencing of the impermanence of things, of the, the unsatisfactoriness of things, there's this, this relinquishing, this letting go. And in this, in this relinquishing from the understanding, which again comes about by really coming close, being intimate with things. It's really, it's really um, another paradox that, that the, the knowing of not-self is dependent on the self. We're looking closely into self, and then we can know not-self. And looking into things, looking into things that are impermanent, that come and go, that are subject to birth and death, looking into them and, and knowing their nature and understanding their nature and experiencing it right deep through the being. And we can know that which isn't subject to birth and death. There can be a knowing of that which isn't impermanent, which doesn't come and go, which isn't conditioned by other things that come and go. And it's not that that kind of wipes out the things that come and go. It doesn't deny or reject them. These conditioned things are, are almost like a gateway for knowing the unconditioned. This is the, the unconditioned, what the Buddha referred to as the deathless. 
the unborn and the undying. And in the deathless, in the unborn and the undying, that, that which isn't conditioned, which isn't subject to change. And that is the freedom, which isn't dependent on having anything, on getting anything, on getting rid of anything. Not dependent on any particular mind state or any particular emotion or any particular way of being or particular name or label or color or shape. The unconditioned, the undying, the deathless. And this is the this is the, the real liberation that the Buddha is pointing to. The liberation that goes beyond pleasant states. goes beyond me and you and here and there and us and them and really does bring to an end suffering in the world. So let's sit together quietly for a couple of minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.